Coming up on Tech Nation, we make decisions all the time, but unfortunately, we're only human. Columbia University professor Eric Johnson is here with the elements of choice, why the way we decide matters. Then rare genetic diseases, not as rare as you might think. They affect one out of 10 people worldwide. Dr. Dietrich Steffen is the CEO of Nubase Therapeutics. He talks about rare genetic diseases as well as Nubase's approach. And telehealth, TechNation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about its challenges. All this coming up on this week's TechNation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Derek Thompson, a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. When I started reading his book, I realized that I didn't really understand popularity, as in the nature of popularity, its very definition. So I asked him, what is popularity? Mm, we're starting with the easy ones. Oh, um, good. <laughs> <laughs> what is popularity is a great question. I think you can break it down into two categories. The first category would be attention. It's what we pay attention to. But the second category is appeal. It's what we like. It's what we love. And we don't always like and love that which we pay attention to. I think about this in terms of TV ratings. Sometimes the shows with the highest TV ratings are sometimes hate-watched. People watch that show, uh, they tune in, but they despise the thing that they're looking at, uh, whether it's the news or sometimes even a reality show. And so popularity isn't just what we pay attention to, it's also what we love. And this is a book that's very much about the psychology of appeal, the psychology of why we like what we like, but it's also about the economic markets that sometimes determine that which we pay attention to. So I try to keep both in mind. Well, certainly the economic markets will at some point create popularity so that the economics can flow. And at other times, they chase the popularity mm. so that they can monetize it. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, I think that, for example, in the history of the news industry, uh, we've gone from a period of relative scarcity in the middle of the 20th century. You had a handful of television stations and radio stations that had the power to reach tens of millions of people. But now the power of broadcast is democratized, and there are Twitter accounts and news feeds and Facebook pages, et cetera, et cetera, that have the power to essentially reach just as many people. And so it's not so much that we live in a purely viral world where everything is social and it's all one-to-one -one and one-to-two shares, but rather we live in a world where the power of broadcast has been democratized. And so now you have individuals whose powers of attention and powers of appeal, both sides of popularity, uh, are as large as some legacy media institutions. And then you tell us, don't listen to this, it's gone viral. There's nothing <laughs> viral about it. <laughs> one, of the, one of the most fun chapters to write, actually, was the chapter called The Viral Myth. I think what's happened uh, these days is that when something gets big out of nowhere, we say, oh, that's gone viral. We default to saying this. 
But viral has a very specific meaning in epidemiology. It means that I get you sick and you get two people sick and they get two people sick each. And this disease spreads over many, many, many generations of intimate shares. But there's another way that information spreads, and we're participating in it right now. It's a single source of news being broadcast to many people at once. Uh, the Super Bowl, for example, is a very famous, well-known broadcast. Nobody says of an advertisement in the Super Bowl, oh my God, that ad went viral in the Super Bowl. No, it was very clearly broadcast to 115 million people at once. So the question, I think, for people who are interested in popularity is, does information truly go viral or does the, do the biggest broadcast determine popularity? And when data scientists now can actually study the spread of a Twitter post or a Facebook post or a viral YouTube video, it turns out that when you look at that information cascade, that map of the idea catching on, it looks much more like a series of broadcasts with sort of social tendrils than it looks like a pure disease spreading. So I would like us to sort of shift the way that we talk about the spread of information online from purely viral to broadcasts that we don't always see. And I call them dark broadcasts. And I think we live in a world that is dominated by dark broadcasts. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Derek Thompson, a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. He's still at The Atlantic, but you might also catch him doing news analysis on NPR's national afternoon show, Here and Now. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Columbia University professor Eric Johnson about how we make decisions and how we are intentionally influenced to make a particular choice. His book is The Elements of Choice. Then Dr. Dietrich Steffen, the CEO of Nubase Therapeutics, talks us through living with Huntington's disease and the scope of rare diseases worldwide. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the challenges with telehealth and how they might be improved. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Eric Johnson. Eric, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you, Mara. Great to meet you and great to be here. Now, every parent and caretaker of young children knows you never give open-ended options. You know, very early on, you say, would you like an ice cream cone? And you know you mean vanilla. Then they get a little older and you say, would you like uh, ice cream, chocolate or vanilla? You know, just limit the choices. And it turns out this approach extends to the choices we adults are given as well. That's absolutely right. In fact, the whole program started when someone who was a friend of mine said, 
you know, what you're doing is really important. I used to ask my little girl whether she wanted to go to bed. And of course, that always got to answer yes or no. I then decided to ask her, should I fly into bed or do you want to bounce into bed? And she never chose no bed at all. <laughs> so that's exactly right. And this structuring of how choices are presented to us is called choice architecture. And that's really what I've been interested in the last many, many years. Now, this is what you say started with Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein in their book, Nudge. Is this, what does this mean, in fact? So they named it. I think people who've been studying decision-making for a long time have had what you might call stupid human tricks as their forte. That is, we show you a question in one way, we show you a question another way, and your choices are inconsistent. And we've used that, including me, to say, gee, look how interesting people are. Some people say, look how stupid people are or irrational people are. And I think the idea is, let's turn that into a positive thing and present choices to people in the way that they make a choice that they themselves would be happier with. There's a slight distinction with choice architecture is that you have to present people with some question. Nudge, not in the book, because they're very careful, but nudge sort of has been taken to mean anything you do to change people's behavior, to get them to pay their taxes, to get them, you know, to be organ donors, to get anything that is a nudge. But really what we're talking about is basically giving them the same information, but doing it in a way that will encourage them to make one choice or another with an important caveat that it's a choice that they would want to make. Well, I had to laugh. It brought me back to years ago when I was a technology consultant and my client had just installed a very large computer system from a very well-known manufacturer. And it was time for the big sign-off. And they said, oh, will you do the sign-off? And I said, sure, I'll do the sign-off. You know, it's so easy. So this fellow came in with a clipboard, a piece of paper on it, and it had, he had a number of questions. He goes, very simple, very simple. So he asked the first one, do you understand blah, blah, blah? And I said, yes. And he checked the box. And, you know, the next one, he asked me, do you understand? And I said, yes. And he checked the box. But he made the mistake of just ticking down his clipboard. And I realized next to ever, do you understand? There was one box and next to it said, yes. <laughs> so, so then he says, do you understand? And I said, no. Right. He was apoplectic. He was like, his eyes are going, he had, no one had ever said no before. And he didn't know what to do. So I, I let him squeeze for a while. And I said, oh yeah, I meant yes. I meant yes. He was, <laughs> oh, you, know, you could just see him. Now they can't, do that all the time. I mean, that must be an extreme example. It, it is. And it's one that I suspect is just, you know, essentially lawyers trying to, should we say, cover themselves. And I think that 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 goes to the point that not all choice architecture sometimes used not in your best interest or the decision maker's best interest, but rather in the best interest of the person who's asking the questions. So not all choice architecture is benevolent. There's also, you know, malevolent choice architecture. Now, one of the big revelations for me in the book is Google pays Apple. That's actually quite amazing that the defaults have great economic consequences. So let me explain what a default is first. And that is what happens, much like in your example, when you don't make an active choice. So every choice is going to have something that happens if you don't make an active choice. So, for example, if you, and for many years in this country, if you weren't saving toward your retirement, guess what? You continue to not save. And what happened in 2006 is the default was changed or companies were allowed to change the default. 
So they, they would say, well, save 3% of your income for you unless you choose not to be. And so those sorts of things, defaults are really important. But that's, retirement's important. But what's worth billions of dollars to Google is to be the default search engine on your iPhone. You can change that. I don't know anybody who has. But you can change to use, you know, DuckDuckGo, Bing. I don't think, I don't even know what the options are because I've not looked. But because it's the default, it's, you know, has almost everybody uses Google's search engine on their phone, which is obviously worth lots of money to them. And it's worth lots of money because of all those little banner ads that you might click on and they get paid for. I think that's exactly right. It's also worth it because I'm sure some of that also goes to tracking. Your listeners would be interested to know that when it first started to change the tr tr give people choices for tracking on your iPhone, it was buried five different menus deep. And then the question itself was sort of a double negative. I looked at it and I didn't understand if I was even turning on tracking or turning off tracking. Now, obviously, Apple has decided this is a competitive advantage they have, so, so they've changed that. So it's actually a very, very prominent choice you make. But early on, it was almost impossible. And most people thought they had turned it off when, in fact, it was still on. Now, do we have any idea how much Google pays Apple for this privilege? Um, it's actually interesting. The um, original numbers were in the low billions, and estimates in the New York Times <laughs> were close we're, we're closer. I mean, this is for for the um, search engine. In fact, there has been a big issue because Facebook has been very upset, as you know, because Apple has said by default, you're not going to get tracking information. So people have to opt in. The default was changed. And you know there were full page ads taken out by Facebook saying how awful this was. Now, while we're in the technology sector, you write that one in five Americans often or always read online privacy policies. I mean, do you believe it's that high? 20%, one out of five? I think the important thing that I should have added, if it's not in the exact text, is say they look at policies. There is a beautiful study I like quite a bit that actually gave people privacy policies that had a couple added lines that aren't in real privacy policies. One is you give them permission to give all your private data to the National Security Agency, and you're going to give them your firstborn child. <laughs> that was in the privacy policy. And nobody, of course, read that. It goes to show you that often. Um, I'm up for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Look, I just want to get, I just want to book a flight. Let me do it. <laughs> I can see that. I'll say anything to get that flight booked. To get that flight, especially if Sully Sullenberger is flying the plane. Now, remind us, this is a guy that can make a decision. Remind us who he is, what he did, and how he made the decision he made. Well, it was really kind of remarkable on a personal front because I was flying that day from LaGuardia, the, that lovely airport. Actually, it's much nicer now. Lovely airport in New York. And, you know, a couple hours later, the famous flight 1549, U.S. Air, left LaGuardia. And so when we landed a couple hours later, we saw that there was this plane that had landed in the middle of the Hudson River. You might remember because they made a movie out of it, of course. And, you know, Sully and the entire crew were heroes and got keys to New York City. Um, I started reading a lot about actually the cockpit. And the reason I'm interested in this, I think cockpits are places where people have done very good choice architecture. And it's because they've explored this with lots of flight simulation. 
simulators. So you will be there and they say, land in Charles de Gaulle, and they'll move the gauges around. And eventually they'll find the right position and the right design of the gauges. So you can land at Charles de Gaulle and in Heathrow and in every airport well. So they've actually empirically figured out how to do that. And the key to this is what happened to Sully. He had like three minutes from when the geese were killed by the and killed the engines at the same time, and he had to land. And so this is the classic case of not having a lot of time to make, obviously, life and death decisions. Turns out there's a gauge, and this gauge normally actually is powered by the engines. So it was going to die immediately. And it, they're, they, like every pilot, they're going through a checklist and everything. And on the third page is something like that, is when they turn the gauge on. And he said, no, I'm doing it right away. And what the gauge does is let him fly the plane as far as possible by keeping the speed bounced to the angle. And so basically, by get, essentially, this is where I wish we were on television, but there's an arrow and a, a green dot. And if he gets the arrow to point the green dot, he doesn't have to think about it. It's going to go as far as it can. Every kid who plays video games understands how you exactly. do Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I'm sure if I was someone who did, who did Flight Simulator, I would actually be, be there. I should do, good idea. I should do that. But what that let him do is not have to think about, am I getting the speed right or am I doing that? He could then start looking out the window and say, you know, I've been to New York. I've been to the Intrepid. That's a place where all the ferries and all the fireboats and everything else is. That would be a good place to do a water landing. And I think the day that day the temperature was about thirty degrees, so people had to get out of out of the plane and out of the water quickly. And so you know, um, he you know, became a hero. But I think part of the real credit for that goes to the gauge and the designers who said, "Let's make this easy." The best quote I is and uh, when I was reading this is one of the companies that designs these cockpits said, "We want to give the pilot the information they need when they need it, and anything else is clutter." And I contrast that in my own mind with actually a web page. Like if I go to Amazon, I love Amazon. I use Amazon, but I really get to see a lot of things like, you know, I'm shopping for um, stair equipment and below it are ads for detergent. Now, if that's not clutter, I don't know what is. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Columbia University business professor Eric Johnson, director of the Center for Decision Sciences. He's also been the president of the Society for Judgment and Decision Making. He's here today with the elements of choice, why the way we decide matters. Well, you also just simply quoted some of Sully's words there, and he talked about load shedding. He's a Purdue engineer, which we um, uh, we are familiar with in the power industry, on the electrical grid. we got to shed that load, shed that load. But he also used a term I was not familiar with. He said he had to goal sacrifice. I think that's interesting. Yes, it was very interesting. I mean, when I saw load shedding, I had to, not being a Purdue engineer, I had to look it up. And it's what utilities do when they have too much demand for power. They basically say, we're going to shut down the factories and not the hospitals. And so the analogy here is that what the gauge let them do is not pay attention to lots of things, but pay attention to the things that matter. And goal sacrifice is what, frankly, we do all the time when we make decisions. Decisions have trade-offs. We go for, we'd say one goal is more important than the other. And the nice line from that story that I like very much is he's decided the plane wasn't important. He wanted to save the people's lives. So that's what he meant by goal sacrifice. And there's a great line, which I, I love a lot. His co-pilot said, isn't this a great country? You sink a $62 million aircraft in the middle of the Hudson River and you're a hero. 
<laughs> There's a goal sacrifice for you. But, uh, yeah, but he obviously sacrificed the right goal. I mean, and, and you know, I, I think those trade-offs are what make decisions really hard and being able to concentrate on what that trade-off was rather than do calculations is really the, the, the thing that makes that such a good story. Well, we could be with Sully in the plane. We can see, okay, he's selecting that particular gauge for input, but most of the time we are taking input from other people or it may just seem like a description. It may seem like a label. It may seem like anything, but other humans made it uh, for us to consume. Let's talk about perceptions and labeling. Well, we can start with the easy one, 75% lean versus 25% fat. That, now, as your listeners, because they're smart, realize is 75 plus 25 add up to 100%. That's exactly the same ground meat. And what's interesting is when you actually look at the studies that have been done, people love the 75% lean meat. They'll pay, it tastes better. They'll pay more for it. And why is that? And I think the key there is something that I think is not appreciated about decision-making enough, and that is how, much, how important our memories are, that what we're doing is retrieving images, thoughts. Um, so when we see 75% lean, we see it high protein. I'm, it's going to result in a buff me. When I see 25% fat, well, I think my arteries are getting uh, clogged. It's the same meat, but different associations come to mind. And so I think one of the things that choice architecture does is guide our recall of different things. And it's not just numbers. Uh, you write about the Danish weight loss company who got better responses from their website with a photo of food over a picture of a thin model. Now, I mean, I, when I read that, I was surprised because I thought naively that they both might work. But it turns out what they found is there were very big differences is because people looked at the model and said, that could never be me or I'm not that. You know, they saw the differences. But when they saw their food, they said, hmm, that looks pretty good. I could eat that. And maybe then I'd look like that model. <laughs> but again, it's bringing out different associations for what is it. What comes to mind, something that I, I call assembled preferences, because unlike economists who think we know exactly what we want all the time, psychologists have been pretty convinced that people make it up as we go along. They're actually predicting what they'll like in the future. And if you're predicting, then you know, you're using memory because you're saying, what would happen if I did this? What would happen if I did that? And so if I see the, the attractive food that's going to make me thin, that makes it much more attractive. I didn't realize this, but Ben Franklin had some sage advice about how to make a decision. What was this advice? and Why does it work well? So Ben Franklin is famous in decision-making circles. I had seen that quote for many, many years. And what people always say is he says, take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, put the pros on one side and put the cons on the other side, and then just count. You can weight them if you want. If something is twice as important as the other thing, that's fine. But just count where the balance of the evidence is. And this is used to justify all sorts of mathematical models. And when you read the quote, there's actually a dot, 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 an ellipse that actually I almost sometimes claim is censored. Because what he really says is you should go away and come back the next day and write down things that you think of then. And that's because in Franklin's mind and in all of our minds, really, when you write all the pros, it's very hard to think of the cons. Or if you write the cons down first, it's very hard to think of the pros. It's what psychologists call inhibition. Thinking about one thing inhibits the other. 
So what's the hidden part of the Franklin quote, which I think is really interesting, is you come back the next day, you're actually going to write down things you don't at the first sitting. This is a lot like, I don't know if you do crossword puzzles more, but often I can't figure out what the, na- what the answer is. Then I go back away for an hour. Do I come back and say, of course, uh, four-letter name for a Swedish palindromic rock band? That's ABBA. But I can't think of it when I first see it. But when inhibition settles down and I, I, you know, I was thinking of the Eagles before, whatever, I'm, I'm actually able to recall something. And that's really a very important characteristic of memory, particularly when it comes to decision making. If there's one thing I've learned in all the biotech interviews we've done all these years is that biopharmaceuticals, biotech vaccines, even biological diagnostics are keeping us alive longer and longer than than ever before. You even write that 20 years ago you would stage for Hodgkin's disease and recovered due to two stem cell transplants. And if I hadn't read that, I never would have guessed looking at you. I mean, it's like, what? Are you kidding me? But I wanted to frame this in how people think and make decisions about or don't make decisions about retirement. I mean, what's coming into play there? It's, it's very complex. It's one of the more complicated decisions we don't make because many people don't think about about retirement. In fact, there are, are there's evidence that when you ask people, when did you first think about retiring? They literally say two years ago in terms of exact dates. You know, I'll retire someday is what we all think. And until you actually you know look at the calendar and say, well, um, and so that's a good example, I think, of a, of a preference that's assembled. It's not like you say, and part of that is there's something very unpleasant we, have, we should think about, at least according to economists, and that is how long are you going to live? Because obviously what you're doing is saving money to last through your, the rest of your life. And people, not surprisingly, including myself, don't like to think about the year they die. So we have another example of how asking the question changes what people think. We ask people two forms of the question, what year will you live to versus what year will you die by? Now, if you think about it, it's a lot like the fat versus lean. There, you should give the same answer to both questions. I don't know what the answer is for me or you, but it should be the same. But it turns out they think about different things with those two labels. Die by, they start thinking about their Aunt Ethel, who you know died at 62. They thought of, think about the fact they're 15 pounds overweight. They think about the fact that um, you know they really don't eat as well as they should. If you ask live to, they say, oh, there's Uncle Harvey. He went to 102. Um, you know, I did run last week in four blocks, so that's good. I didn't smoke that much in college. And besides, medicine is coming up, as you point out, with all these wonderful life-sustaining treatments. And they, will, on average, think that they will live 10 years longer than the people who are given the die-by frame. So your orientation to how long you're going to live then flips back into, well, what do I need to retire? Because I'm going to think I'm going to live this long. Right. So it turns out um, there are companies that sell policies called annuities. Now, some annuities are very good. I I teach consumer finance, and annuities are important and positive tools, but not all annuities are good. So I've come across in searching the web companies that say, you know what you need to do if you're going to sell an annuity? You should ask people how long they will live to. And you start that conversation. You ask them, "Uh, do you have anyone in your family who's lived beyond 90? So they basically are doing the process as a sales pitch that we do simply by saying, how long are you going to live to? How long are you going to die by? And actually, this turns out to be relevant for probably most of your listeners eventually, which is they'll have to make a decision about when to claim Social Security. 
And that's interesting because you can claim any time between 62 and 70. And the tricky part of the decision is each year you wait, your check grows by roughly 8%. So whereas you might get $1,300 if you claim at 62, you'll get over $2,2300 if you wait till 70 to claim. Now, of course, that depends a lot upon how you're going to live. I've been speaking with Professor Eric Johnson, the author of The Elements of Choice, Why the Way We Decide Matters. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, rare genetic diseases, less rare than you think, and one company's approach to Huntington's. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the challenges in telehealth. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Columbia University business professor Eric Johnson, the author of The Elements of Choice, Why the Way We Decide Matters. And actually, this turns out to be relevant for probably most of your listeners eventually, which is they'll have to make a decision about when to claim Social Security. And that's interesting because you can claim any time between 62 and 70. And the tricky part of the decision is each year you wait, your check grows by roughly 8%. So whereas you might get $1,300 if you claim at 62, you'll get over $2,2300 if you wait till 70 to claim. Now, of course, that depends a lot upon how you're going to live. If you're going to live a long time, you should definitely wait, assuming you have some money already to get you to to 70. Um, And it's really an important decision. And it's important, too, because it illustrates something really not obvious about choice architecture, which is not everybody should necessarily make the right decision. That is, if I'm somebody who has money, I'm enjoying my job, you know, I'm a college professor, um, I probably should wait till 70 because I have money I could live off. Even if I retire at 63, I can live off that till I get to 70. But there are other people, let's say someone who's like a baggage handler who hates their job, their back is giving out, 
and they don't have a lot of other savings, they probably should start claiming at 62. And so one of the interesting things that's a lesson about choice architects, or as I prefer to call them, designers, is they have to realize that they can't change everybody into the same direction. I might get people to wait to retire, but some people would be harmed, the people who should be retiring at 62. So you really have to think about customizing the design to the decision maker, which I think it's part of, I mean, certainly people talk about this, but it doesn't get enough emphasis. Customized or what we call smart defaults. Set the default into what is best for that person. So if they don't make a choice actively, they'll actually get a good outcome anyway. It really is all about you. It has to be <laughs> in that particular case. Now I'd like to talk about well, actually, not quite, because people have spouses, so it gets more a little bit more complicated. Ooh, ooh, that's right. I don't talk about that in the book, because the book has, can't talk about everything. But, you know, the, the, the case Social Security Administration was worried about is someone who has a uh, quote-unquote, you know, old-style traditional family, where the husband retires at 63, the wife is significantly younger and hasn't worked. So she'll, have to have, she'll live longer than him, in all likelihood and have the lower benefits. So it actually isn't all just about him. It should be about them. And they were concerned it wasn't. If he doesn't take it till 70, by the time she takes it, she'll get a higher benefit. She gets, was it half of his or something like that? Yeah, she'll, 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 yeah, depending upon how much she has worked, but she'll get more money. So the idea is you should think not only about your own longevity, but those of your spouse. Who should think about you too? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, I'd like to talk about something called natural eye movements and how that relates to choice, whether it's on the screen, on a menu, on, on signs around you. So something that we all don't know, it, it's, probably, it's a thing that when I teach, particularly like MBA students who haven't had a background in psychology, they say that couldn't possibly be true, but it is is your eye is actually not continually seeing. It actually is taking a series of snapshots. Um, one way, I actually, I show this in class, is you take out your iPhone and take a picture of you reading. And you'll see your eye is moving from dot to dot to dot. And when it's not moving, it's actually blank. When it is moving, it actually blank, blanks things out. But your brain makes this beautiful movie out of what is really a set of snapshots. Now, that seems odd, and why am I talking about it? It's because it's a great research tool. That is, we have nowadays machines that are the size of a pencil case and cost less than $200 that you can put on top of your laptop, and they will actually look at what you're looking at. So I can actually, see, you could actually see what I'm looking at the screen as I read. So you see what's paid attention to, and probably more importantly, what's not paid attention to. And so this is actually something that is very informative for your studying decision making. If you're in the if you're doing the cockpit, you can actually see not just what Sully says he sees, but you actually see what he's looking at. And so that's been very important to research. And you know, it, it's really changed whole areas of um of of choice architecture and how we design um choice environments. So when I think about menus um and signs in general. Um, I think about, you know, us going left to right. Is this any different in, say, China or Japan, where people naturally, if they're reading text, read right to left? It's actually, it, it turns out it's a slight more, the, the best contrast is Hebrew, which is read from 
from right to left. In Japan, there are multiple multiple scripts, and they, they're read differently. Oh. But yes, that part. But that part is true. And the sort of the key to the, all of this is it's not left is always correct. It's what it draws attention first is correct. So one of the things that is really important to realize if you're trying to understand the stages of attention is to understand, you know, if it's text and it's a menu in front of you, you're going to read from left to right. Unless, of course, maybe you're in Israel, whether you're going to read from right to left, unless it's, of course, an English menu. But the important thing that's constant is in both cases, what draws attention first. Now, if you're Netflix and you're showing pictures it's slightly different because you see instead of words, you see different color uh, images, icons of each of the movies. And they, they spend a lot of time studying that pattern. And they realize that things are in the center and brightly colored tend to get attended to first. So someone listening might ask me, you know, should I be left or right? Or the question is, you should be wherever attention is drawn first, assuming you're using a visual display. Well, you do. You talk a lot about Netflix and and what they show, and apparently, what they're showing me is different than what they're showing you. I just read an, an updated article that essentially said that Netflix is, is sending a, a customized page to almost every viewer, and they spend a lot of time looking at what icons. I don't think they do the icons individually, but I could be wrong. Um, but they actually show you so. There are typically on your Netflix landing page different uh, lines, and those order of those lines differ, and what's in those lines differ. So one can say, you know, TV for you, and mine might say boring documentary. <laughs> the same line. It, they will customize for very narrow segments because what does Netflix want you to do? Netflix wants you to use them and find things that are engaging that you'll watch. But there's another little interesting trick, which is. They also want you to do that on things that are not very expensive for them to reproduce. So they're trying to maximize <gasps> your happiness conditional on <laughs> you know, what, what, what they pay for the rights for the, for the materials. Before we get to what we can personally do, let's talk about deliberately bad architectures. Give us some examples. Yeah, there, there are two cute names for this. One is, is uh, sludge which I think is great because it rhymes with nudge. And actually, Cass Sunstein just has a whole book about sludge. Um, the other one, which is actually coming from computer science, is called dark patterns. And that is actually choice characters that, that's made you to do things you probably don't want to do. So remember, I good choice structure, you do what you would want to do. This is the opposite. Um, and there are lots of examples of this. So one of the cases that I talked to the FTC about early on was one where there was a pre-check box that enrolled you for uh, a credit scheme that was below the fold, as they would say in newspaper days. You had to scroll down to see it even was checked. Uh, so obviously you were totally unaware that you had agreed, quote unquote, you'd agreed to actually become a member of this, uh, get this card that turns out cost you, you know, a few, you know, tens or $20 a month. And people only realized it when they saw the bills later on. So that's a good example of evil or malevolent choice architecture. We could also call it the your first baby has left the room architecture. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they got him. That's there he goes. <laughs> that's exactly bearing it into a long statement. You, you've all seen the uh, great pictures. Uh, there are a couple of lawyers um, who've written about disclosure. 
and they stand on the second floor of the University of Chicago Law Library holding the iTunes uh, agreement, and it goes down all the way to the floor in fine print. (laughs) Well, given this minefield of choices, which we are making constantly, what what can we do? Give us some ideas about how we can tre- tread this path, how we can how we can go forward without reading every privacy policy, without constantly questioning. What can we do? So two things. One is that first, realizing we have a hidden partner in every decision we make. And that hidden partner is this designer. And that designer hopefully has our best interest in mind. Um, or I think what's much more common, they have no idea what they're doing. They're doing things just because that's the way we've always done it. Or that's, you know, that's, that's how I think it should work. And then there are also designers, of course, who are evil. So I, even just awareness, I think, of choice architecture helps. Um, the other thing to sort of sidestep your question, but not really, is to realize we're all choice architects ourselves. We pose questions to those around us, our loved ones. So... You know, you, we talked earlier about, you know, getting your kids to go to bed. You were being a designer. You lay out outfits for your three-year-old for, for day here that day. You're deciding how many outfits to put out, what order to put them in, um, what they look like. Should they all be blue or, you know, do I give a selection? For all choice architects, my wife, when she says, where do you want to eat tonight? It's a choice architect. So it's not as if choice architecture is only done by firms. It's done by us every day. Well, Eric, this has been just terrific. Uh, You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Thanks for coming in. Well, thanks. I'm a fan, so it's so good to be with you. Thanks so much. My guest today is Columbia University professor Eric Johnson. His book is The Elements of Choice, Why the Way We Decide Matters. It's published by Riverhead Books, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Pretty much everyone understands that we have DNA, a shared inheritance from our biological mother and father. Similarly, we also inherit RNA, which we've heard of in connection with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. On the simplest level, our RNA reads our DNA and produces proteins. But what happens where somewhere in there, there's a problem? Dr. Dietrich Steffen is the CEO of Nubase Therapeutics. There's a category of diseases called rare genetic disease or Mendelian diseases where even a single letter misspelling anywhere in the genetic code can cause a devastating disease uh, in the person that inherits it from mom or dad. And in fact, there are between five and 7,000 of these in very individually rare diseases, and collectively they account for up to 10% of the global population. So it's a big problem. Now, uh, is the problem in the DNA? Is the problem in the RNA? You inherit your genetic code from both mom and dad, and it comes together in you. And uh, oftentimes you will inherit a position in your genetic code, which causes the um, RNA and then the resultant protein to be dysfunctional, and that's what causes disease. So it really is encoded in the genetic blueprint or your DNA. Now, give us an example of a disease we might be familiar with. So there are thousands of these genetic diseases. Um, And one example of a genetic disease is Huntington's disease. 
Um, it is a what's called dominantly inherited disease. So one of the parents in their 50s usually will get the disease. And uh, it's transmitted to the offspring. So 50% of the kids will have it um, by chance. Very often these are... Um, you know, young, uh, early 20s uh, individuals that are seeing mom or dad get a devastating diagnosis, you know, lose the ability to walk and talk and think and eventually die. And they've got a 50-50 shot of having that broken gene. Um, and many people want to know, and many people don't want to know. And in the absence of any therapy, uh, many people choose not to know. Now, let me ask you, if you have the gene... Are you definitely going to get it, or is this one of these probabilities? If you have the Huntington's disease gene, you will get Huntington's disease uh, with 100% certainty. And so it really is a, a very difficult diagnosis, a genetic diagnosis to get. At what point can we intervene? So there are some really exciting new therapeutics coming down the pipe, um, we're developing one, but others are as well, uh, that actually intervene at the RNA level. So when that gene is co- that broken gene is copied into an RNA molecule, um, there are technologies in human trials now that will pull that RNA molecule out of circulation before it can form a broken protein and kill neurons. And it's just an exciting time. Uh, I think we're on the on the cusp of having real solutions for Huntington's disease. Now, is this what they call gene silencing? It is, yes. So gene silencing is a way to turn broken genes off so they don't form broken proteins, which then go on and cause disease. And the way we do that is we synthetically develop a little short strand of DNA or RNA with the right sequence to go off and... Uh, stick to that broken RNA molecule that your genome has produced. And once it sticks, it can pull it out of circulation so it's never copied into a protein. And so it's essentially silenced. And this can be done with a number of diseases, but we're just talking about Huntington's today. That's right. Now, Nubase is one of the companies that's trying to get this done, but you have to say every company is different. What is your approach at Nubase? Our drugs can be administered with an IV formulation and get right into the brain as well as other tissues in the body that are affected in Huntington's patients. They also don't cause an immune reaction when given in, in an IV formulation, and that allows patients even pre-symptomatic patients, to potentially benefit from our drug so they never get the disease. So that's our hope and our target for the future. At what age do the symptoms first appear? Huntington's onset can range from um, uh, late in life to very early in life. Even uh, young children can be affected. And what defines the age of onset of Huntington's is how... Um, large the mutation is in that patient's genome. So the bigger the mutation, the more severe the disease and the younger the age of onset. Do you expect, in your case, that you'll be treating those patients the moment we find out they have those set of genes? Uh, Or do you wait until onset? In our approach, we believe that it's important to give a therapy to a patient that carries a genetic mutation before they have symptom onset. 
and specifically for Huntington's disease, symptom onset is the point at which there has already been a significant amount of brain death, and you can never regrow those neurons once they're dead. So the only way to really push out the onset of the disease is to administer the drug before they get it. I just can't help feeling huge empathy for those young people who in this day and age with our new technologies and all the things we're doing digitally and our smartphones and all this, and now we can know our genes to discover that you have the Huntington's gene. The federally funded Human Genome Project really um, gave us the first sequence of the human genome in 2001. And for the last 20 years, um, scientists, myself included, have been sifting through the blueprints of patients with and without genetic diseases to see what's different at the DNA level. And it's up until now, all we've been able to do is provide genetic testing to individuals who are at risk so they could know whether they were going to get the disease or not. But there largely was never anything that they could do once they achieved a genetic diagnosis. Remember, only 5% of these 700 million people that suffer globally have a therapeutic option at all. Um, 30% of kids who have a genetic disease die before their fifth year of birth. This is all from um, the National Organization of Rare Diseases. So it's only been just recently that we finally have hope through gene therapies, gene silencing technologies, and some of these other incredible breakthroughs in biotechnology um, to offer these people. And um, it's, it's a really exciting time uh, for these patients, and I'm quite optimistic for the future. Dietrich, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Keep us updated. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Dietrich Steffen is the CEO of Nubase Therapeutics. More information is available at newbasetherapeutics.com. That's new, spelled N-E-U, newbasetherapeutics.com. The COVID pandemic has most certainly revealed the value of what we've come to call telehealth. Still, it has its challenges. Dr. Daniel Kraft is the chief correspondent for Tech Nation Health. COVID has really acted in, as an accelerant, particularly for, for telemedicine. I think it's up 30x from where we were pre-pandemic. And, you know, we all really want care that can happen anytime, anywhere, at low cost, that's efficient with a lot of, not a lot of hassle, whether it's two in the morning or if you're in a rural area and can't access a specialist. Um, and so there's this explosion of telehealth and virtualized care that's uh, come along. And that's really changing the way we as clinicians practice, how we as human consumers and uh, individuals want to interact with our care. Um, but it doesn't mean it's always equitable. There's a lot of challenges that also have been highlighted by the pandemic in terms of health equity, uh, meaning you know who gets sick and who gets access to care and where. And telemedicine is, we'd like to think it's different, but in effect, there is not just the social determinants of health, but the digital determinants of health. And many folks in particularly rural areas, and we have about 57 million Americans living in rural parts of the country, often don't have you know regular cell phone co- coverage, let alone high-speed uh, internet access. And so telemedicine really isn't anywhere, everywhere for everybody here quite yet. Now, why is that? Is it just simply because they don't have broadband access? Uh, why is that? Well, sometimes rural clinics and hospitals don't have you know the robust infrastructure 
required for telehealth visits. Um, sometimes it is a bandwidth issue. We are seeing new technologies come. You know, uh, companies like SpaceX have launched microsatellites, one called Starlink, that's launched this year. That's going to bring and already is bringing high-speed internet to many parts of the country that didn't have it before, and also can democratize. Uh, high-speed internet access anywhere at, at almost 5G or, or faster speeds. So that's going to be a game changer, but that hasn't completely rolled out yet. Some of it is an issue with, you know, patient volume uh, and, and knowing that there is access to, let's say, uh, a specialist in a big tertiary care center and uh, making sure that the nurses and healthcare providers and clinicians know that they have these opportunities. And then it's often a challenge of regulatory and reimbursement. Telemedicine still requires uh, clinicians to be licensed in the state you're doing the telemedicine visit. So I'm in California, but if I wanted to do a telemedicine visit in a less dense state like North Carolina, North Dakota or South Dakota, I'd have to get licensed there, which is not an easy process. It's still very much facts and paper-based and can take uh, months and lots of dollars. So there often aren't enough virtual providers in some locations or specialists to meet to meet the potential needs. So those are some of the some of the challenges. But I think as we sort of now move into this world of, of blended telehealth and virtual and analog care, um, we're going to get more used to trusting these sorts of technologies. The barriers can start to come down. We're going to start to equip folks, not just with telemedicine on the screen, but you know, home-based diagnostics, uh, platforms that are consumer-based. You can buy in a Best Buy or Walmart that will listen to your heart or look in your ears or uh, do an EKG that can transmit that data before your virtual visit or during and sort of start to augment the levels of the care. So we can really put the, the digital exam combined with the telemedicine experience in almost anyone's pocket or at a school or workplace because telemedicine isn't just at home and it isn't just you know, talking to your clinician or a sometimes a random clinician uh, through your screen. It occurs to me that you know the introduction of technology uh, is out of pace with managing professionals. How difficult it, would it be to license physicians coast to coast? It wouldn't be. We do that with some other fields, but uh, healthcare is often quite siloed and guild-based, and certain specialties and others only want to have uh, board certification, which is often national, but licensure uh, very much uh, state to state. Um, and I think there's a, particularly as exacerbated by COVID, the need to enable licensing to happen. Sometimes it can enable a nurse or doctor to go from one state to another where there's a disaster or need to respond to a pandemic surge, for example. So I think we need to relook, now we're in this digital mobile connected age uh, on our regulations and our incentive systems to help those things start to happen. And again, some of it also is about how we don't just get there physically or virtually, um, but how we share data uh, get it out of its usual data silos, how we can take some of these consumer devices in our homes, whether it's our smartwatch uh, or basic Fitbit that can track our steps and our sleeps and integrate that into not just that virtual visit when there's a, a challenge or an acute emergency, but part of our continuity of care, uh, the sort of longitudinal care that can start to be cracked, tracked by our, our home-based devices, whether it's your smart speaker that can actually pick up heart, heart rate and vital signs, the camera on your laptop or um, iPhone, or Android phone can now look at you and while you're, while you're speaking with someone else, pick up heart rate, uh, maybe blood pressure soon, uh, respiratory rate, temperature, uh, may be useful for your negotiation, but also could be useful in attracting your longitudinal health. We're in a time now where- Maybe that's what we'll put in the dating apps. Instead of swipe right, swipe left, we'll, we'll be able to figure out what, where the chemistry is. 
there's some chemistry that could be evaluated there. Some folks have actually put together dating platforms that are based somewhat on your genetics. Uh, we are attracted to people uh, by their smell often, and there's a genetics around smell. So all sorts of interesting things are, are going in the virtual world. And, you know, it's going to go beyond the screen. We're now entering the world of uh, AR and VR type glasses. And particularly with virtual reality, we could feel like we're in the same room. Clinicians are starting to do virtual visits uh, as consultations. They can go rounding in hospitals uh, where you don't have a stroke specialist, for example. That's been a classic area where telemedicine, telehealth, particularly in rural hospitals where there isn't a, a neurologist on call or available. Someone comes with a stroke and time is brain. Uh, it's kind of standard of practice now to pull up a telemedicine uh, neurologist and decide whether that patient needs uh, a lysis of the clot in their brain, for example. And that saved many, many lives by blending smart technology, basic telemedicine, and beyond. So so if you're in St. Louis, and that's in Missouri, and the fellow who can tell or the gal who can tell whether or not you need that treatment is on the other side of the river in Illinois, there could be a real problem, even though the technology and the expertise is identical. Yeah, absolutely. So that's why we need to, to, to help exacerbate that shift. There's some estimates that up to $250 billion of U.S. healthcare spend could be shifted to virtual or virtualized or virtually enabled care. So that can make a, a big difference. We're right now at about 30 to 38 times higher use of telehealth than before the pandemic started. And now almost every one of us as a, a on the clinical side or the patient side has, has had their first telehealth experiences. And some of them can just be smarter you know, texting platforms. There's always, again, not to be on camera. We've been doing forms of, of telemedicine for a long time using phones and, and radios. But now that we can blend these modalities, um, you know, and we have the setting of the pandemic, it, it skyrocketed the area. And new healthcare models and business models are really evolving to enable this to happen. Some of it's platforms like Hims or Hers, so you can get your ED medication or your birth control pill refilled. Uh, it's platforms that are even enabling virtual eye prescription, uh, where you can go into your corner pharmacy and get your eyeglasses prescribed without an optometrist. Um, it's platforms providing virtual mental health, which has really been a big uh, and exacerbated uh, need in this pandemic era. So I'd like folks to think differently about telemedicine than just having an app and pressing a button to talk to a doctor or nurse. It's blending all sorts of new ways to do healthcare differently from you know prevention to diagnostics to therapy to public health. Well, thanks so much for coming in. Really appreciate it, Daniel. Thanks, Maria. I'll see you online. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician scientist and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.